You guys sound fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Hey, would you help me by turning your eyes to the screen? I have a picture for you. I want you to take a look at. Yeah, you recognize that stuff? Now, this is just a bowl of food, but uh, it happens in other realities of life, don't we? We have our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter life, and then we have some reality. Go ahead and show the next picture, guys. Yeah, here's a guy on the left-hand side. He's at Paris, right? Nope, he's just in his bathroom. Yep, just the angle of the picture. And here in this next picture is a young girl who had to get the perfect shot as she looks over the cliff at the water. But in fact, in real life, her friend is keeping her from making herself into the fool she actually is. All right, right there. Yeah. So here's the thing. There is the Instagram life, there's the Facebook life, and then there's reality. Today, I want to talk with you about getting out of the grave of comparison. Because Jesus is alive, because the power that raised him from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies, we get to have life with him, not just in eternity. Thank God for that. If that was it, that'd be enough. But we actually get to have life with him here and now in this world. But in order to live as disciples who are walking in the light and the life of Christ, I think that we need to be aware of a few things that if we're not careful, will pull at our energy. It'll pull at our attention. It will, in effect, in effect, and it's not an overstatement, it will, some things, if we're not aware of them, if we let them into our lives too far, they'll actually become like death to us. And comparison is one of those graves that I want us to run out of. That's what this whole message series, beginning on Easter and for the next few weeks, is about. What are those areas of life that, if we're not careful, become a grave for us? They are places of despair and darkness and decay. They're not where disciples are supposed to park out and live. If we have to pass through those seasons, we're supposed to keep walking and get through them. And comparison is one of them. And you know all about this. An author that I like to read, a pastor I like to listen to, his name's Andy Stanley. Here's what he said. He said, comparison is determining where I am based on where everyone else is. And by the way, that's not all bad. In fact, there's a segment in our life, typically around middle school years. If you don't know what I'm talking about, remember your middle school years, you'll remember it. There's a segment in our life where psychologically and sociologically and spiritually, it's normal to be very aware of the people around you. And in fact, you get some of your identity by knowing how you're not like them. So they have blonde hair, I have not blonde hair, right? Now in middle school, they have blonde hair, I have not blonde hair, I want blonde hair, right? That's the way that works. I remember when our kids were going through middle school, like we do every year before school, we take them out and buy them some reasonably priced clothes and some school supplies and send them off to their first couple days of school. And when we hit middle school with our first child, I remember her coming home and saying, those clothes you bought for me, that is not what everybody's wearing this year, right? And she was very aware. And some of that is understandable and reasonable. And there's even a good comparison. Sometimes you can compare yourself to other people. And as you do that, you get a benchmark for where you are. And it can actually, in a healthy way, kind of propel you into more engagement and more healthy engagement. I love to compare my marriage with my wife to people who we think have great marriages. We like to say, what is it they do that we don't do? How do they talk about each other when they're in public? How do they engage others so that we can... So there's a place for comparison that's very good. But are you old enough? Are you aware enough to know that there's a comparison that can get very, very dark? It can leave you feeling ashamed. It can leave you feeling empty, inadequate, and unworthy. It can make you feel like you're not a part of the group in a very unhealthy dynamic. Comparisons can show up in marriage. Husbands comparing themselves to wives and wives to husbands. It can show up in marriage in couples comparing themselves to other couples in ways that don't propel for the best, but actually make somebody wallow in a reality that may or may not even be true, and they feel less than. They feel inadequate. They feel cheated and robbed. Yeah, comparison can be a trap. And if you're a disciple today, follower of Jesus, a new one or an old one, you are not exempt from the tendency that we all have because we live around people, because they're doing some of the same things we're doing, you're not exempt from comparing yourself. 
Today is about making sure that that comparison doesn't go to a dark place. I don't want you, for instance, to finally muster up the courage and walk for two miles, and you've said you've been wanting to do it since the first of the year, and you did it. So you're excited, you sit down to rest, you open up your phone, you pull out Facebook, and you see that CrossFit Corey, your friend, not only walked two miles, he did it on his hands, and he had weights in each of his feet as he did it. And so here you've done something great for you, but all the joy is gone because of CrossFit Corey. You guys know them, don't you? Or, or, or you know, you finally got a date night with your spouse. And you guys, you know, you're managing your budget, so you go out to a reasonably priced place, and you sit down, you have a conversation, and like Jill and I do, you find yourself, even though the kids aren't there talking about the kids, but it's all right, it's all good. And so you're having a nice time, and you go home, and you open up Instagram, and your friend, you know, perfect marriage, Pam, they also had a date night, and theirs was 10 times better than yours. And they took a picture of their beautifully calligraphied notes that they took, and all the goals that they were going to set together over the next, and which is great, great for them. But rather than you feeling awesome, you feel like yours is a little less than. A few months ago, this really happened. I, I had a, a lady in the church, and she was talking about the fact that she and her husband finally had a relaxing night. And, uh, and she's sitting around, she opened up Facebook, which is where a lot of comparison can happen. And she pays attention that one of her friends on Facebook her husband had made like a gourmet meal, and it looked beautiful on the plate. And she's sitting there at the table eating her meal, and she's got it all arranged well, and she takes a picture, and he's actually in the kitchen cleaning up and wiping things down. That's the picture. Can you see it? And she said, exactly as I'm looking at Facebook, I recognize that my husband's sitting on the couch eating frozen pizza playing video games. <laughs> That's the way I felt right there in that moment, right? Now, they say in preacher world that the Sunday after Easter is the hardest Sunday to preach because expectations were high. The people who come once a month, they came last week, you know. So everybody, everybody talk, and then you, you jump on social media or you get phone calls or texts from your friends. So last week we had an amazing week. Like I'm just blown away by how awesome it was. The number of guests, thank you for inviting your friends. The preparedness of the building, it was incredible. People were just so good. 21 adults, 15 of them were first-time guests, committed their lives to Christ, were following up on them and trying to you know, help them understand how much we would love them as a family of God. And then I get some communications from some friends of mine. And Pastor Jerry, 196 people at his church last weekend committed their lives to Christ. And I was really feeling great until I realized that on Easter, Jesus went to church with Jerry. <laughs> and next week, I'm going to invite him to come to our church you know, next year for that. So... It's just hard because you're always, it's always in front of you, right? When you're good at something. You remember, men, remember when you were younger and better at something than you are now because you had energy and, and, and you know, you, you were in the sports arena more frequently and now and then you, like we have a softball team here. I didn't mention this in first service and they're good, but there's some younger guys and some older guys. And I'm just telling you, the older guys, some of them have better skill, but they're having to work it twice as hard and it's just difficult to not compare yourself to other people. So if you're a disciple that does this, you're in good company. Disciples have been doing this ever since the time of Jesus. And Jesus has been there trying to get our focus off of others and onto him. The song that Jen sang is exactly what we're trying to do. Turn our eyes on Jesus so that the things of this world get dim. When that happens, by the way, you as a disciple will hit levels of joy, contentment, and effectiveness in your life with Christ. You'll never hit when your eyes are on everybody else and what's going on in their lives. So what we want to do is we want to get out of the grave of comparison, and it reminds me in your message notes right there at the top of Luke chapter 24. Now, it says Luke 5, which is how I said it in first service. But we corrected it on the screen, but not on your message note. Luke chapter 24, verse 5 through 6. The women have showed up at the tomb, and they have a conversation with the men in white about an empty tomb. And here's what the Bible says. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen and then remember how he told you. Remember what he said while he was still with you in Galilee. 
And this begins the story of post-resurrection life. That the power that raised Jesus from the dead would come in a new way on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit would show up in a different kind of way, fill the followers of Jesus, establish the church, and the full power of God would be available to work in people and through people in a way it had never done. And we're recipients of all of that possibility today. But too often, followers of Jesus find themselves going to places where death reigns, where destruction has reign, where despair grows. And we find ourselves too often hanging out in graveyards. There's graveyards all over the world. There's graveyards all over your life. And your job is if you must go through them is to go through them and not to stop. And often to avoid them in comparison, this dark side of it is one of those things I want to get you to avoid, to rein in, to understand its force for sometimes good and sometimes bad so that you're not caught off guard because comparison can be pervasive. It can be incredibly, it's everywhere. You will not get away from it. No matter what you do, somebody can do it better. And if they can't do it better today, as you age out, somebody will do it better. And no matter how much you get, somebody has more. And no matter how awesome he is, he's not awesome all the time. And it seems like the time he's not awesome is the time that somebody close to you is in an awesome one, an awesome relationship. So no matter, and, and can, we, can we talk honestly about kids for just a second? Not every parent in this room loves their kids, right? I was talking to a couple of folks just before first service. And here was the summary statement we agreed upon. Family's great when it's great. You know what I mean? Isn't family great when it's great? And isn't it not so great when it's not so great? That's the power of family. It's the highs and lows. And it seems like sometimes when yours isn't so great, you can be made very aware in your own mind, on social media, through a, 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 an innocent conversation, just how awesome it appears somewhere else. And I don't want you stuck in those graveyards, and you can't avoid comparison. Here's the other thing about comparison. Comparison can be very, very subtle, the dark side of it, because it's not all bad. It really is good on occasion to benchmark yourself, your performance, not your value. It's really good on occasion to benchmark your performance against what other people are capable of doing and against people who do something really, really, really well. So, for instance, you guys are arguing too much in your marriage. Do you understand that there are people at marriages who don't do that? That they're able to talk about differences and they don't descend into destructive communication. So you can compare how they do it to how you do it and you can learn some stuff from that. That's comparing your performance. Or you can do the dark side of it and compare your value who you are at your core, and what you're worth. And there's the problem with comparison. How does it stop? She's thinner than me, becomes, which is an objective truth, <clears throat> becomes a, she's better than me. She's more valuable than I am. She's more lovable. She's more attractive. She's more desirable. That's where it gets ugly. He has more money than I have. So therefore, he's more, now you fill in your blanks. What would you say? Important. He's more successful, sure. There's a lot. Of, we could, the problem isn't evaluating performance. The problem is evaluating value. And as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, if you're not careful, this comparison thing will become addictive. There's a fundamental question you'll have to answer, and whether you're a disciple or not today. You'll have to answer it. But for a disciple, our answer has been provided. And here's the question. Who or what is going to define my worth? Who or what is going to define my value? I had too many high school girls let a high school guy define their worth and value. Too many middle school boys allow their middle school buddies to define their value. 
And parents on both sides are trying to convince them. I know there's some reality to what you're saying. I'm not dismissive of your experience, but that's not who you are. That's not your worth. And sometimes out of the fear, sometimes the the baggage that can happen through a comparison-oriented culture, and that's where we live, sometimes out of that thing that happens, because not only is it pervasive and subtle, it can be addicting, All we know about our value is by the messages we believe other people are telling us as we evaluate what we think we're seeing in them. And it can get really, really ugly. And when that happens, let me me tell you one of the signs. You're not even willing anymore to discuss performance. How is our conversation lately going? How are we managing our money these days? That's just statements of performance. You're not even willing to do that because you can't discuss performance without treading upon the emotions of feeling like they're really conversations about your value. By the way, you want to get stuck in your marriage? Every time your wife wants to talk to you about something, tell yourself that she doesn't value you, and that's why you have to have this conversation. Or tell yourself every time your husband wants to talk about something important and emotional, that really what's going on is you're, you don't have any worth. There's something broken in you. So you won't even let that conversation go there. That's the problem. When comparison gets into the heart in a destructive way. But again, disciples have been doing this all along. You're not alone. Just a few days after the resurrection, <laughs> the greatest event. Jesus has talked to the women, you know. Uh, He he says to the disciples, I'm going to go meet you. He shows up in John chapter 21, which is the chapter after the resurrection. So we're in post-resurrection life. We're in Jesus has conquered the grave. We're in death cannot hold him realities. And the disciples, Peter the disciple, who has failed him, has this amazing encounter with Jesus. At the end of that encounter, Peter is restored. Jesus has reaffirmed Peter's call. Everything that was broken is made right. It is a great day for the world. Is it a great day for Christians? It's a great day for those 12 disciples. It's a great day for Peter. So in the middle of all that greatness, how do you think Peter's going to handle it? Well, if you've been around church, you know that when we talk about Peter, it's so fun to talk about him because we're better than he is, most of us. At least we like to think we are. He's fun to talk about because he gets it wrong so much. And yet God holds on to him. The good news is if you struggle with comparison at all today, God holds on to people who struggle with comparison. He really does. And he wants, like with Peter, we're going to discover, he wants to show you some things with clarity of where your worth comes from and what you can give your life to that matters. And the kind of thing that no matter if anybody sees it or values it, it can still bring you joy. And there, there, my friends, is the problem. The reason we have to talk about this is because the enemy of the disciples, our enemy, the great liar, he knows, as we discussed in my small group a few weeks ago, he knows he can't get you. You're signed and sealed with Christ. The enemy can't steal you out of heaven. He can't steal you out of a relationship with God. He can't do that. God's greater. God's more powerful. But what he can do is he can rob you of your joy while you're sealed in Christ. You know why that's a problem? Because the Bible tells us, for instance, that the joy of the Lord, the joy of walking with the Lord, the joy of being with the Lord, the joy of knowing the Lord, the joy of knowing the Lord in a way that informs you about who you are, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So when he robs you of joy, he robs you of your strength. That get up and go, the I can keep going. And nothing can demotivate most of us more than an overly attuned comparison contraption. And so even when we do great stuff that for us is great and praiseworthy and notable, we don't even feel great about us because of what others are doing or what we are afraid they're going to do. So here's what happens with Peter in John 21. The third time he said to them, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Some of you recall this story. For others of you, this is new. But Peter had failed Jesus three times. It's after the resurrection. Jesus is going to ask him three times, do you love me? It's a way of kind of restoring and undoing some of that pain. And so he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter's like, of course I love you. So Jesus says to him again, feed my sheep. This is a statement of Peter's call, his unique call to be a shepherd. Shepherd is the biblical word for pastor. He's going to be a pastor in the Lord's church. He's going to feed the congregation. And by the way, in the future, that's what Peter does. But right now, he's on the back end of some pain, some disappointment, and some failure. And this is his restoration period, all right? So Peter gets told by Jesus one more time, feed my sheep, Peter. The call I gave you is still there. Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, here's where it gets interesting. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So in that moment, Peter gets some information. Hey, Peter, I want to be clear with you. I'm calling you to follow me, and I expect you to follow me all the way to death. In fact, when you get old, somebody's actually going to take you by the hand. They're going to put, you know, change you, put some clothes on you, and they're going to take you to a place where you actually don't want to go. And history tells us that Peter was actually crucified, and he didn't want to be crucified like Christ, so he was crucified upside down. We don't, can't guarantee that, but it's very reasonable that actually is what occurred. And so Peter is led away, and Peter knows in that moment that Jesus is saying, the call I gave you, this is for the rest of your life, Peter. I'm with you. We're together. It's a wonderful statement. Peter gets a snapshot of his future. Hey, and we wouldn't necessarily welcome that, but he has clarity about it, even though it's you know, some dark news. But it's the last phrase Jesus says, follow me. Peter, I want you to follow me. Great clarity here. Then verse 20. Here's where Peter acts like the disciple that I am too often acting like. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. we got to pause on that. So John the Apostle is writing this book, John, John chapter 21. And whenever John refers to himself in his own book, here's what he says. It's comical to me. The disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> now, there's a couple ways to look at that. The cynic in me goes, come on, come on, tone it down just a little bit, John. Everybody else is watching, right? But here's what John's thinking. I know Jesus loved me. I know he did. Now, he loved everybody else, but John, rather than naming himself and putting his name in some way that could be enshrined in the Hebrew culture, even today, written words are powerful, so you don't even write the name of God with all the letters. It's too holy. So John's not going to write his name. He's going to describe himself with a statement that's pretty potent. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And actually, can I be honest with you? I wish you and I wish me had more profound sense of just how much you are loved by God as an individual. Not just because you're a disciple. Out of all the disciples, you personally are loved. So when Peter is having this conversation with Jesus, he turns and evidently the disciple whom Jesus loved is following behind. This was the one who had leaned against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? So when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Hey, Peter, follow me. It may get ugly. Follow me. I know you messed up. Follow me. You still love me? Okay, good. Feed my sheep. Follow me. All right. Got it, Jesus. But what about him? Do you see what's going on here? That what about him thing that Peter's doing? That's the trap I'm talking about. Peter's getting clarity. He's having a conversation with Jesus. But rather than being focused full on the face of Jesus and the things of this world growing strangely dim, what about him? I, I like to talk, again, badly about Peter because it makes me feel better about me. It's why I watch reality television. I like to watch Maury because, uh, you know, I just feel better about myself. I'm... I'm exaggerating. I'm actually captivated by some of that stuff. I love it, for instance, when people get in a flame war on Facebook or in Twitter, and they're going back and forth. And I, I never comment because I'm 
better than that. But I never comment, but I cannot get enough of that stuff when two people are going at it, man. I love that stuff. And I'm joking when I say I just feel better about me, but kind of, I do a little bit, right? Um, I like to talk about Peter because he is the perfect description of a man who Jesus doesn't give up on. And I think the reason I'm drawn to him is because I need to know for certain regularly that Jesus ain't going to give up on me. If you're wondering that at all, if you're wondering what other people think about you and how they're comparing you, because really at the root of comparison is what you're doing to yourself, and there's another side of that. There's what you think other people are doing with you. There's you and what you're thinking and how you evaluate yourself against others. And then there's what you think other people are doing with you as they evaluate you compared to others. But, and, and try to separate those would be impossible. But at the core of the comparison, can I tell you what's going on? There's some pride in there. Now, there's a good pride. There is the who I am in Christ pride. There is the I am unique and special pride. There is the I have rights as a person made in the image of God pride. And as American, I have rights because I'm an American dog on it. Pride, sure, all that's good. Then there's a downside of pride, the kind the Bible often talks about. That pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride that was probably present when heaven had a rebellion. And Jesus said one-third of the angels are cast out. A pride that gets in you, that keeps you from being appropriately others-focused. That every interaction, every engagement with others ultimately gets interpreted through the immediate impact on you. This is why Paul, by the way, wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Paul says, I need grace on this too, but probably not just me, all of you do. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So think about yourself through the lens of what God wants to do in your life. Can I tell you the, the downside of comparison if you're a manager? You got people that work for you? You want to improve somebody's engagement and performance on your team as a manager? You know where that conversation is likely to go. If they think they're doing better than the rest of the team already, good luck with that. Because the first place that goes is, is, well, what about everybody else? I'm doing better than them, right? Comparison gets in not only in Christian dynamics, but just normal dynamics. And comparison can both make a person feel horrible about themselves, but it can also make them quantify everybody else in the least complimentary terms so that the lowest common denominator is the measure by which they get their sense of worth, dignity, importance, and status. It's destructive for relationships. They rob you as a Christian of your joy, which impacts your strength. It'll destroy unity because it causes jealousy and resentment. Jealousy and resentment comes because why should you have that? Why can't I have that? As if having that is some universal right. The reason the Bible talk so much about unity is because when unity in a local church is broken, the church is relatively ineffective in its mission until that gets largely repaired. You don't have to understand church dynamics. Just look at your family, husband and wife. When unity in your marriage is broken, good luck trying to parent from that broken place. Good luck trying to solve a problem together or experience a, a, an ugly season together in that when you don't have unity. It's very difficult. You'll know no loneliness like the loneliness that comes when pressure comes to a marriage and there was already an absence of unity. It can bring you together. The problem is challenges tend to reveal what's already there before they actually do anything else. So it can be very, very painful. And in a church situation, jealousy destroys unity. 
So I'm going to be a little bit more revealing than I should be today, and you're welcome to send me emails if you don't like it, all right? Sincerely, I'll read them. Ben at fourcornerschurch.com, all right? Comes back to me. But when I was first starting ministry, my mentor pulled me aside, and he said, hey, I want to challenge you with a couple things. Um, when I was growing up in ministry, he said, um, husbands work, wives stay at home, but with all you young guys, a lot of your spouses work. And he said, and your wife has a really good job. And Jill does, by the way. My wife works full time. A lot of you don't know that. She works out of our home, so it's a unique situation. She's, you know, well compensated. I tell you that because it's going to matter for just a moment. So he says to me early on, um, we're, we're getting rolling in ministry, and he says, so what's going to happen is, is your wife's income is going to afford your family a quality of life that a lot of people in ministry don't have, and a lot of people in the church you attend don't have. So my advice to you is to be very, very careful because broken people will take what they see, interpret it, and they won't be happy for you to be blessed. That's what he said. I dismissed it. I thought, yeah, I don't think you know what you're talking about. Maybe that's the church you were a part of. That's not anything I'd ever be a part of. Turns out there's some wisdom in that. So let me give you an example. A few years ago, my dad retired several years ago, 20-something years ago. And uh, I was really, really happy for him because he, he did really, really well the last few years of employment. Because this was the man that when I would ask for $5 to go to the arcade, he'd say, no, go, go mow a yard, right? And so I'd have to go mow a yard. That guy never had any money for me. That's what I felt. Now, he was paying the bill, putting the roof over my head, clothes, shoes. So he, he was doing the stuff. But I, he was cheap. Are you, are you picking it up when I'm laying down yet? Fast forward years later. He's retired. He's got grandkids. And this man passes out $50 bills to his grandkids, and I'm still a little ticked about it. <laughs> I am just a little upset about that. And the only, only comfort I take in it is eventually it's all going to be mine anyway. So anyway, anyway so, so my dad likes to take his grandkids out and splurge a little bit. Now, I'll be honest, I'm thrilled about that. But he buys stuff that I would never buy. Some of my kids like a certain type of clothing at one point in their uh, development, and so that's fine. But Jill and I aren't stupid. I'm not spending my hard money on that stuff. That shirt's no better than this shirt. But my dad has turned stupid in his old age, and he's throwing around money. So he takes them out, and he's like, here's a shirt, here's a shirt, here's a shirt. And so they wear them to church. It's been a while since this all went down, so safe to say. And it comes back to me in like three different streams in a matter of a week. Here's, what, here's how it comes to me. How does Pastor Ben have enough money to buy his shirts like that? So that was the day I came closest to writing my resignation. Now, that's not a joke. That's the truth. Because I'm just not going to. But then I think we're all broken. And I shouldn't have to tell that story for people to be happy for my kids to have what they have. Even though I had nothing really to do with it. Now, that's how it impacts me. I wonder how jealousy and resentment and envy has impacted you over the course of your life with your family or your church existence. So can I tell you how I like to define who my friends are? Like, do you guys do this? Do you have, like, friends and then friends and then friends? Like, do you do this? You know that now everybody's the same, right? You don't have deep relationships with everybody. But in my inner circle, here's one of the ways I know somebody's in my inner circle. When I share with them good news about me and my life and my kids and my wife, and, they're, and I can see it, and they are genuinely happy for us to be blessed. It's one of the ways I know that's a safe inner circle person. Because too many people, and by the way, I'm giving you the same advice I was gotten. Don't share too much of your good stuff, man, because somebody ain't valuing you and it the way you do. So you need to have people who do. That's why pastors and other people go into kind of hiding about their life because they know that broken disciples act like Peter. Something good happens, even if it's happening to them, but something's going on over here. The disciple whom Jesus loved, what about him over there? So comparison creates incredible disunity in relationships, and it produces deep insecurity in people as well. Deep insecurity. If you're the one middle school girl who doesn't have a boyfriend when they all do, now whether or not they do and what the quality of the boyfriend-girlfriend thing is and whether it's healthy for them, that's never discussed. It's just they do, and of course they don't, but they all do, and I don't. And you see how insecure that gets real quick, right? 
or your husband does this, or you can take those vacations, or you can do that thing over here, or you got a new car. I'm going to tell you something right now that's going to make you very jealous. You ready for this? It's not about me. Here we go. There's a guy in our church that as of this week has more money than he's ever known what to do with in his life. Now, before I tell you who and what, let me tell you what happened. Three years and five months ago, this guy got together with his wife in our church. We were offering a program called Financial Peace University. And they decided, we're going to get rid of our debt. And man, they went to it. They gave it to God. They gave themselves to discipline. They compared themselves to others who had done it. And they did what those people did. They evaluated their performance. They also believed God had more for them. And they not only did that, but they began to teach others how to do it as well. And this week, I got an email in fact, would you stand up? Andrew Ehlers in the back. Andrew Ehlers and his wife paid off $80,000 worth of consumer debt. <laughs> Woo! So we tell you what he's going to do. He's probably going to go on a vacation. I hope they post on it in Facebook. And when they do, when they do, somebody's going to say, why can't I go on a vacation like that? What's so good about Andrew? Can I tell you what's so good about Andrew? He compared himself to people who were doing it well. He prepared his performance but not his value. And he gave himself to the hard work. And so now he's going to be able to live like nobody else lives because for the last three years and five months, he lived like nobody else is willing to live. That's what happened. But you don't know the backstory. You'll just see the book or, or, or on Facebook. You'll just see the, the vacation or maybe the car or maybe the bigger house, which I think is part of their dream is to just expand a little bit for their family. So I want to give you Two big ways that you can begin to conquer comparison. Here's number one. These are not complicated, but they are important. Number one, walk in as a disciple your universal calling. Walk in your universal. Every disciple has a universal calling. And it's the, it's the same calling that Jesus gave to Peter. Follow me. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of this earth will go strangely dim. Around here, we say that discipleship is getting a heart that is more in awe of God. We're winning as a church when our programs, preaching, worship, all that we do helps people turn their heart more to have a deeper and fuller and more valued perspective of who God is. The way we say it in kind of parlance around here is you become a fully developing follower of Jesus. That's our goal. And so one of the ways you begin to break comparison is you begin to walk in your universal calling. Look how the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 said it. And I have some of the words for you there in your message notes. But you can follow along on the screen if you want. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So throw it all off. It's not for you. And let's run. As a disciple, you're supposed to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. This is the plural. This is all of us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set out before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Run the race disciples are called to run. So we follow Jesus, not others. We worry more about what he says you are. And I want to show you what he says you are up here on the screen. In Christ, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but in Christ, up here on the screen, you are chosen, changed, you're a new creation, you're forgiven, you're blessed, you're victorious, you're set free, you're healed, you're free from condemnation, you're more than a conqueror, you're dead to sin, you're alive with Christ, you're accepted in Christ, and you're complete in Christ. So I want to challenge you to think about who you are in Christ. And the next time you begin to feel comparison rise up, the kind that makes you not evaluate your performance to do better, but the kind that makes you despair at where you are and wonder about your value and worth and do people care about you, I want you to remember what Jesus says about you. In fact, I want to get these in you all the way. I'd like for you, if you don't mind, to say them with me. I'll say the I am. You help me finish it, all right? So back on the first of the list, I am chosen. I am changed. I am a new creation. I am forgiven. I am blessed. I am victorious. I am set free. I am healed. I am free from condemnation. I am more than a conqueror. I am dead to sin. I am alive with Christ. I am accepted in Christ. I am complete in Christ. So if this is who Jesus says you are, can I just ask you an honest question? What does it matter what they think about you? 
What does it matter? Are you going to, like Peter, get stuck in a loop that says, what about him? What about him? By the way, when Jesus had Peter say that to him, here's what Jesus said. Hey, if I don't want him to die until I come back, what does it matter to you? Follow me. Can I ask you, what does it matter how God blesses somebody else? First of all, do you even know what's really going on? And secondly, what does it matter? Because in Christ, you are all of those things we just said. So part of what you do to get past the cult of comparison that everybody seems to be a part of, is you got to remember your universal calling to follow Jesus and his perspective, his words, are the words that matter more than anybody else's. This will help you here. For some of you, it matters more than your dad's words about you matter. It matters more than the teacher's words about you matter. It matters more than your boss's words about you matter. It matters more than your small group's words about you matter. It matters more than your own words about you, about all that other stuff matters. What is that to you if God chooses to do it with somebody else? What is he doing in you as a disciple? Which brings me to my next point. You walk in your universal calling, but you also walk in your unique calling. We take deep joy as a church in helping people find part of how God has wired them up so that they can, no matter how they earn a living, step into the ministry, the role. So I'm going to give you some unique callings here. I don't know all going on in your life, but if you're a man in the room today that's married, real quickly, just slip up your hand real quick. You're married and you're in the room. Good. Put your hand down. Can I tell you it's part of your call? I don't know everything about your unique call, but here's part of your unique call. Because you're a man and you're married, God has called you to serve and love and give your life and protect and help raise up. And the Bible actually says help make holy your wife. That is your call. doesn't matter what anybody else does. doesn't matter if all your friends don't do that. doesn't matter if they're always doing this over here and if you were to do this, you'd have to change. None of it matters because your unique call, the thumbprint God has put on you if you're a married man and you're a disciple, is all those things I said. All right, ladies, you ready for yours? Raise up your hand if you're in the room. Good. So here we go. Ladies, if you're in, I don't know all that God's called you to do, but he's called you to respect and honor and lead with and lead up and engage and press through and be powerful with your husband, even as you guys do life together. I don't know all that he's called you to do, but your words, your attitudes, your actions, that's part of your unique calling. If you're a student, I don't know all that it's meant to be, but if you're still living in your home and you're a student, God has called you to honor your parents and give yourself to the discipline to gain wisdom and knowledge so that you can be used by God in this world in a profound way. Can I just be honest? When my kids were going through that season, like all kids do, and they were very worried about everybody else, you know what we said to them? And it didn't matter because they don't listen, but here's what, here's what we said to them. Here's what we said to them. You don't have time to be worried about everybody else. You just need to get your schoolwork done. You haven't got time to be focused on all this other stuff. You haven't got the emotional energy to spend on that because it seems awful hard for you to just get up and get at it. But they were kids. How about as an adult? Do you have time to focus on everybody else and what they think about you and where they're going? Because I'm going to tell you what the enemy would love for you to do. He'd love for you to see everybody else and get focused on them because that will stop you in your growth and your effectiveness in your tracks. It'll stop you. And that's what he wants. He can't take you from God's hand, so he wants to make you ineffective. And comparison will do that. It'll get in your head. It'll get in your heart. So when Paul was writing to the Philippian church about our unique calling, look at these words. Again, some of you in your message notes, not enough room, so some on the screen. Here we go. I want to know Christ, Paul says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So I want all this resurrection power stuff, I want that to happen in my life. I want to know Christ in a way that all that was going on in the resurrection, all of it, the good and the bad, happens in my life. And then look what he says, verse 12. Not that I have already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That is your call. I don't know what expression that's going to take. Are you a teacher who goes beyond your profession and really loves kids? Is that your call? And when you do that, you're to press into all that Christ has for you in that. Are you a guy that earns some money over here and takes care of your family and fulfills that portion, but then out of the overflow of your time, your money, and your energy, you give yourself to some great endeavor? Maybe. I don't know the way your expression of the ministry and your involvement in the kingdom looks, but I know that you're supposed to give yourself to it. And if the enemy can get you looking at other people, he has made you ineffective, probably robbed you of joy, made you deeply insecure, or you're on your way into it. And that is not at all the life that God wants for you. He doesn't want that for your spouse. He doesn't want that for your kids. He doesn't want that for a single kid we're serving today, right now, over there in that room. All that space that we've put together, he's not what he wants. I want you to see Jesus fully. I want you to look on his wonderful face. I want the things of the world to go strangely dim to the point that people around you go, oh my gosh, they're priorities. I don't know what's going on with them. When they see you carve out time to serve and be kind and to give and to forgive and press into that stuff, they're asking what would motivate you to do that. By the way, you know what's powerful about a church? So, You'll do it imperfectly, and I'll do it imperfectly. But if you press in, and I press in, and she presses in, and he presses in, and we all press in, you know what happens then? We can then begin to spur one another on to good works, which is what the Bible says we're supposed to do. And we can call out that crap that comparison does, and the broken unity, and the shame that comes up. We can call that junk out. Ladies, I want to remind you that the next time you're with another sister in Christ and there are tears, it's always an opportunity to stop and pray. One more time. Tears are always an opportunity to stop and pray, close your eyes, and focus on Jesus. Because as real as that situation is, can I be candid with you? Jesus is more real. But the enemy will lie to you and make that stuff bigger than him. And that's when we close our eyes if we have to. Close out the messaging that enters our heart and turn towards him and not compare ourselves to anybody or anything other than what he says and let who he says we are speak louder than any other reality. So over the next few weeks, we're going to keep looking at other places where death has a tendency to creep into the life of people who are supposed to be fully alive. But right now, I want you to grab out your Connect card and let's uh, take a few steps. So thank God for 21 adults, 15 of them first-time guests who committed their lives to Christ. But if you're here today and you haven't done it, it's okay. He's still alive. I want to give you a chance to say, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. Very simply, you trust the work Jesus did on his death and resurrection. You trust that he's God and you're not. And you give yourself to following him. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you can be saved. We'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A in a few moments to Offering buckets are going to come by. You just put the card in there, and we communicate with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Some of the stuff we've been talking about today, who he says you are and how you are a son, how you are his daughter. You are connected to the family of God. In a moment, I'm going to pray and give you a chance to do business with God. Bow your head with me and say, Jesus, save me. Wash me. Make me clean. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Um, we celebrated last week in second service two amazing baptism, story of redemption and cleaning and new hope, fresh starts. So if you want to do that, check the box. We'll communicate with you. And next step C says, I'll speak aloud each morning this week, the I am's in Christ. Send me the list. I'd love to send you that list. And I'm asking you like at the red light in your car, open up your phone and just say it to yourself. People next to you, they think you're crazy. It doesn't matter what they say. Don't compare yourself to them. All right. So I am in Christ. I'm free. I am in Christ, I'm healed. I am under no condemnation. I am completely restored. I am who Christ says I am. And I'm wondering if every morning this week, it just washes over you and maybe begins to drown out some of those other voices. And then next step D, it says, hey, Ben, would you send me the link to sign up for our local serve on May 4th? You don't have to sign up, but if you 
check the box. We'll send you not only the link, but we'll send you a bunch of information. It does help us prepare for the crowd that's coming. We'll be serving again at New Life Mission and at the Healing Center. This is how we help our neighbors in need. It's one of the expressions of ministry here. And whether you're a member of our church, Christian or not, you can be a participant in this. And the next step, E says, send me the link to sign up for Grow For. This is where we begin to explore how your unique calling, your thumbprint, begins to find expression in the body of Christ. All right? And we really want to help you do that. We take great joy. Pastor Melissa and her team do an amazing job helping people do that. So would you set aside your card now? If you call this church home, I'm going to give you a chance to give back to God part of what he blessed you with. So two weeks ago, not on Easter because we had so many guests, I talked about the launch of our Easter offering. This is going to run for a couple weeks. I want to give you an update. We're doing really, really well. I'm surprised actually because we very rarely talked about it. But we said we wanted to raise about $25,000 to upgrade our student space. If you haven't heard that, that's what we're doing. Every Christmas and Easter, we do an upgrade. We're not going to construction. It's remodel and some room shifting. We also have 5,000 allocated and 15,000 allocated. So the goal is 45. Here's where we are, which is barely talking about. We're at well over $12,000 already. And so the goal is not necessarily to hit, although I'd love to hit. If we hit, we can do some great stuff. The goal is for everybody who calls this church home to just give something. I would like everybody in this church to have a tangible investment in the next generation. And so if we hit the 25, we'll do all we hope to do in student ministries. And that means for the next few years, every kid, God uses that ministry to touch. Every time a kid's heart is turned towards Jesus, every time they hear a truth against the lies of their enemy, you have an investment in that. It's part of what makes this church so special. So if you haven't given to that, think about it. You can do it online. You can do it now. Just write Easter on your check. Or if you give online, go to the Easter offering. In addition to that, I just wanted to say thank you. We had so many guests, and our place looked ready. Not only did our building look ready, you were ready. And you, by your giving, your prayers, and your serving, have allowed us to have a place where people can come and hear about God. And last week, 21 of them said, Jesus, I want to follow you with my life. And God took something silly like money and he used it to help make an eternal difference. And you are a part of it. So thank you. Thank you. Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you have spoken over us truth, truth that cancels lies. Father, here's the truth. Too many times I and my brothers and sisters listen to the lies of our enemy. I pray today that we would focus on you. I pray, God, that we would focus on being a disciple and we would focus on what our unique role is in your kingdom. And that activity of focusing on you and our call would drown out every other voice. Lord, there's some men and women in this room who've been hurt. They're hurting today because of what others have said about them. I pray that the words of Jesus would speak more loudly. They would speak and ring more true. And every hurt, every deception of the enemy would be canceled out. Father, would you take our gifts today, both our next steps and our offering, and would you cause them to go far and wide for your kingdom? We pray it in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.